0: Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We continue with our sermon series this week on the Apostles' Creed, And today we look at the phrase, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. If the ascension of our Lord does not strike you simultaneously, both with terror and awe, you're missing it for what it's worth. It's the final twist of the story. It's the final act of Of love that Jesus does here on earth before his return. Presbyterian author and pastor uh, Tim Keller talks about the ascension as being the detonator. Being the detonator. Now, what's a detonator? It's that small explosive on a larger bomb that causes it to go off. You see, all the preparation, all of the assembly of that mechanism won't work without the detonator. And the ascension, says Tim Keller, is that for the gospel going out into the world. And that might make you scratch your head, and you might be saying to yourself, why is it that the ascension matters so much? Why is it that it's so crucial? to fill one with terror and awe at the same time. Well, it's the hinge between Jesus' life and the life of the church. Notice, we started with the gospel passage, actually the way the liturgy has it, we started with the Acts passage, but at the end of Luke's gospel, we hear the story of the ascension of Jesus coming and talking to the disciples, and then we bridge into Acts with what? The story of the ascension with Jesus instructing his apostles to stay and wait to be equipped with power from on high. Jesus stands right there in between the end of his earthly life and the beginning of the life of the church. And it's the ascension that marks that bookend. Both the end of his life here on earth and the beginning of the life of of the church. Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus descended to the dead and ri- rose again and then appears to the twelve. So where are we picking up here in Luke's gospel? Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 24 and take a look at the surrounding, what's, what's going on here. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew. What's going on in context here is that Jesus is standing among them in verse 36 and in verse 37 it says that it's as if they've seen a ghost, right? So the disciples are terrified but then he shows them his hands and his feet and he eats some broiled fish and all of a sudden they realize it's their Lord in his risen and yet crucified body. Jesus then goes on to repeat that mega Bible study that he gave on the road to Emmaus to the disciples because that's the passage that precedes this passage. Jesus had appeared, you'll recall, to the two disciples traveling away from Jerusalem to Emmaus, right? And they rush back to the rest of the twelve after Jesus does what? He opens the scriptures to those two and he breaks the bread. And all of a sudden, they realize it's Jesus. So we're picking up right on the end of that here. And once again, we see Jesus saying, don't be afraid, it's me. And then eating with them and opening the scriptures to them. Look at verse 44 and 45. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And everything written about me In the law and the the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Must have been one heck of an exegesis, is all I can say. He reiterates why it is that the Christ had to suffer, had to die, had to rise, and that it was all according to God's plan. And part of the ascension's word to us today is that it's all still part of God's plan. You know, sometimes when the world throws us things like last week, the the great mass shooting, I don't know if you're like me, but as you heard that news coming out of Las Vegas, and as you continue to hear it all week, you start to say to yourself, is God really in control? Or are things careening off into nothingness, into destruction? I have to confess that sometimes that tests my faith because I look at the world and I look at God's will and the two don't mix. The two aren't even on the same track so often. And yet, in the ascension, we see here that Jesus speaks into that dark world as he continues to do today. But he speaks in a different way today than he did in that first century when he walked upon this earth, doesn't he? Note in verse 45. Who is it that proclaims repentance of sins and forgiveness in Christ's name? I'm sorry, it's verse 47. And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus has accomplished the task of dying on the cross, going to the dead, and rising again, Now, on whom does he place the Father's word? According to that text. The disciples, right? The disciples, and by extension, the followers of the way of Jesus, the church itself. If that, friends, doesn't strike you to the heart with terror, I don't know what will. The fact that the Father's promise is sent upon you and me, on us. Why do I say strike you with terror? Because if you hold in you the deposit of truth that can lead to life or death, you are like the doctor with the tools to save or kill the patient. You are like the person with the vaccine that can administer it to somebody or withhold it, bringing life or death. If that doesn't strike you with terror, I don't know what will. That God depends on you to bring his word to people and me. You see, it strikes me with terror. It strikes me even more with terror that not only do I have to do that, but I have to lead you all. Because I look around, and look, I'm not beating up on you. I look in the mirror, and I look at my own abilities, and I look at sometimes the weakness of my own faith, and I look at my inability sometimes to even talk to my neighbor about Jesus, about the faith, about the proclamation of Christ that's been put upon me by my Lord, and I shrink down in terror. And you know what? I look into the history books, and I find I'm with good company. St. Augustine felt the same way. Martin Luther said that the law was crushing and felt the same way. And yet, that's the reality. However... That's not the end of the passage, oh thank God. Because Jesus goes on to say that while we are the witnesses, while we are those on whom the Father sends his promise, we're not left alone. Elsewhere in St. John's Gospel, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And here we see that promise continuing that he's not going to leave us as orphans. Witnesses, yes. Proclaimers, yes. But not orphans. He says that they'll be clothed from on high. And as we look to the Acts passage, we see the same promise, don't we? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It was the second lesson today. It's in your bulletin. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Look at verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, there's that word again, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, You will receive power. Once again, I don't want to belabor the point, but notice the apostles, I will, the apostles are saying, Is it now? That the kingdom of God comes? That you're going to come and beat up the Romans and take everything back and make everything right and make mass shootings happen no more? it see, doesn't say see that last part. But to bring it into our context, Jesus says, it's not for me to tell you. It's not for you to know. But what does he say? You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Do you see, Friends the audacity, the audacious love of our Lord to give us that task, to include us in that proclamation. It's not an act just of challenge, however. It's an act of love and joy because he promises that we're not going to do it alone, that he's going to be with us, that he's going to equip us with the Holy Spirit to give us That ability. What an act of love and inspirational joy. The ascension, instead of being an act of terror here, instead of it being all about Jesus leaving, which so many people think it is, all of a sudden it's about Jesus returning and empowering. Right? So think about it. Jesus has left his father's throne... We have a hymn that goes like that. When, you did leave, when thou didst leave thy father's throne. Right? Jesus left his father's throne, came, descended, taught, lived, died, suffered, descended to the dead, rose again. And here goes back to his father. It's entirely appropriate and proper that Jesus should do this. And in fact, I'll make it even more to you that Jesus does this out of love. Out of love. Why? Because Jesus wants to be in the company of the Father again. And that's where he belongs. He's the second person of the Godhead, remember? He's returned to his place. And far from abandoning us, he's gone back to heaven. Not out into outer space somewhere, but back to the right hand of his Father in order to be the director of operations down here in the church, right? What happens? Where am I getting that? Well, in the ancient times, the person that sat at the right hand of the king was the grand vizier or the, the prime minister was the person that executed the king's will. So Jesus is up there executing the Father's will in us down here and clothing us and equipping us with the Holy Spirit. So do you see how that's an act of love? Because not only does God return, does Jesus return to the Father's side to be in the Father's company again, but also it returns there to prepare a place for you and me and to bring us up into the heavenly court. Now, that's not realized yet for you and me. And yet that's the reality of what Jesus is doing And at the same time, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone to accomplish this task. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. I'll send you that power. The word there for power, both used, uh, um, uh, Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. They're they're kind of sequential. And the, the word used in both Acts 1 and Luke 24 here for power is actually the word dunamis, which is the same root as the word dynamite or dynamo. That you will be equipped with power. You will be equipped with the, the ability to do as God will have you do. You see, it would be cruel to leave us with the proclamation of Christ's word, to leave us with the antidote to bumble around in our own merits. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit and he'll lead you into all truth. Remember, Jesus promised this to the disciples back in John 16, 26. He said, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and I'm now leaving the world and going to the Father. But he continues in verse 33. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Do you see? That's where the tragedy is promised. That because the world is still being ruled by the kingdom of darkness, and the church is still warring with the kingdom of darkness, there is tribulation. But Jesus goes on to talk about why is it that we can have peace? He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And by virtue, therefore, with the Holy Spirit, you and I sit in victory despite What goes on in the world. And yet, that victory does not equal callousness to it, does it? Because the word of promise still must go on on us. Anglican priest and scholar J.I. Packer says that the Ascension's story is the story of the Savior reigning, that this is a victory and that the reign of the divine love exchanged between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been restored, but it's been expanded. Lewis writes of this also in Mere Christianity. He writes, Christians believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a drama. And he's not talking about the fact that God's not actually a person there. He's saying that, that the activity behind God is what drives the Trinity. So do you see how that affects the church. Just see what a glory that is that you and I are drawn into that activity to be partakers of that kingdom? Not just to consume, but to go out and do it? To be part of it? You will receive power from the Holy Spirit, Acts 1 tells us. And Jesus tells us the same thing. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is the ultimate twist in the story While Jesus departs, going up into the heaven, he tells them to wait, to be clothed from on high by the Holy Spirit. Both power in Luke's gospel and Acts here is referring to the Holy Spirit's coming. And notice, what does the epistle say about that power in Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, today. Because Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, picks up on this very message. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning with verse 17. He's praying for the church in Ephesus. In verse 17, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him. Okay, so there's that power again, but we continue. Paul says in verse 18, having eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. See, there's the ascension. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see the promise of the Holy Spirit isn't just to get you through the next day? Although it will do that, the Holy Spirit will do that. The power of the Holy Spirit is to enable the church to do its mission. To bring that good news to all and all, not only in the Apostles' day, but in the day, in the age to come, in ours. The Holy Spirit continually gives us wisdom, revelation, knowledge, heart enlightenment, hope, riches, inheritance. What that inheritance is all tied to Jesus ascension and it's all tied to the holy spirit. And when the disciples of Jesus ask, "Who is it or is it time for you to restore your kingdom?" Jesus says, "Yeah, it's going to start in a sense, but not with me, with you and the holy spirit. He comes to restore a kingdom, not politically, not as they thought, not by kicking out the Romans, not by taking campaigns or by um, going out and protesting things or any way like that. But no, the kingdom of heaven comes by the conversion of souls, of individuals in the church to know and love Jesus because there's nothing more powerful, there's no institution that will go and span the ages than the one that Jesus set up in the church, And there's no more powerful motivation than the Holy Spirit in us. He doing in us what we're unable to do of our own strength. That is what we're charged with. And that is what we're equipped for. He's come to do that in us. And boy, if in fact we do that, what a contrast that'll be with our dark world What a contrast that will be with people who have no hope, that think that power is only the thing that matters, that think that notoriety or fame is only the thing that matters. In a weary world in which grave philosophers were counseling suicide as man's best option, the unshakable rollicking optimism of the first Christians who went on feeling on top of the world however much the world seemed on top of them made a vast impression. It still does when Christians are Christian enough to show it. Those words were written 100 years ago by Bishop J.C. Ryle of Liverpool. It still does when Christians are Christian enough to show it that we have a different way, a way of life. Doesn't save you from all the world's turmoil. Yes, you'll have trouble. Yes, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says, for I've overcome the world. So, where are you? How about you? Do you feel on top of the world? And I don't mean in some flighty, fanciful way. That, you know, everything's gumdrop rains and... You know, it's not that. Do you feel on top of the world in the sense that your Lord is on top of the world? Do you find yourself complaining constantly? About what's wrong with the world? About what's wrong with institutions? Do you wonder what the point of it all is and not see? Do you quietly glory in your busyness? You know, I see that a lot in myself, but in other people too. How are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Oh, okay, that's a good thing. It means your priorities aren't in order. It means you've overscheduled. It means your life is in disorder. But, But look at how people quietly glory in that. Is that you? Do you, like so many, buy into the lie of the crushing world That rush-around, rush-around lie that if you just do enough, it makes you important? That somehow it'll matter? That somehow you'll change things? Or are you trying to proclaim Jesus in your life, both to yourself and to your neighbor? Do you work on all things to Christ's glory? Do you take time to stop and reflect? Do you build and plan your time around his kingdom and his priorities? What are his kingdom and priorities? Prayer, serving others, building relationships so that you can speak the gospel to those around you? As Luke tells us, God sends his word upon us, but he also tells us that we are equipped. Jesus is on his throne so that you don't have to be. Jesus is on his throne and calls us to be witnesses to that so that you don't have to fix it all. Jesus is on his throne and it's you and my mission as the church to do what? Yes, to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all those around us. But friends, if, your life doesn't look any different from the people around you. Why the heck are they going to listen to you telling them about repentance and forgiveness? What, what inoculation do you have? What health do you have? What's the contrast? Why should they pay attention to you if they don't see Jesus in you? If they don't see a difference in you? You're equipped You have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has known from the beginning that you're going to be in the situation that you're in right now. And he's called you to be a witness to him. Not to fix it all, but to show forth him. Does the Holy Spirit, does Jesus' good news flow through you like a rushing river or like a trickle? And if it's a trickle, What stands in the way? He, that is Jesus, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he has chosen you. Glory to God. He has won the victory and brought us with him to the Father. Glory to God. How are we walking in that reality? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.